Welcome to The Politics Guys, the place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my regular co-host, Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Factotum, Jay Carson. I'm going to look up what Factotum is. I was wondering how one long... Of, one, of these, one of these days, I'll actually look it up. But it's, yes. it's so weird. We're, 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 I guess we're at the same wavelength, because as, as I said that, I, I thought... I wonder how many listeners have, have. I'm sure it's something really good. It, 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 <laughs> it, I thought it was fitting. I wanted a term that I felt would fairly encompass your connection to the to the GOP, and I think it was the closest I could. No, that is. It's, find. And I, I think, as I understand it, I mean, sort of, sort of like stand-in, sort of spokes kind of. Yeah person. You're not like an of, office right? holder, but you've kind of yeah. been around and you're a supporter. And now some people would say there's kind of a, 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 a take a kind of a toadyish sort of thing. And that's certainly not my intent behind that. I just thought it was the best word we have in English to describe your relationship to the party. So there we go. So anyway, so uh, we're, it's been a few weeks since we've done a listener mail, listener question, comment, critique episode, and we have some some responses or some questions building up. So if you're ready, we'll get right to it, Jay. All right, let's have at it. Okay, we'll start with Amy, who tweeted the following question for Jay. <laughs> she says, Jay, you spoke a lot about people being able to choose their own health care which Amy says she agrees with. My question is, do you feel the same regarding debate over Roe versus Wade? Um, so in other words, know, just to be clear, yeah. Amy is saying you're pro-choice on healthcare. Are you pro-choice on, on contraception, on, uh, on reproductive rights, that sort of thing? On, on, on contraception, I would say definitely I am. Uh, on, on abortion, I would say from a personal perspective, standpoint, uh, I oppose abortion. Um, but I am also a constitutionalist. And at this point, the there is a constitutional right to abortion uh, within uh, the, the, the pre-viability stage and, you know, pursuant to whatever state's laws that have been upheld or, or you know, that, that you live in. So in that sense, yes, if, if you've got... Um, you know, if, if you want to that personal choice, and it's again, it's a choice that I disagree with, uh, uh, but I can't be the person to make it for you. Um, uh, you ought to have your your choice of of providers. Uh, and I, again, I would say certainly a hundred percent on contraception. Uh, I think you know you can put abortion maybe into a different category um, in in terms of of healthcare because there's is the Supreme Court recognized. There are two interests at stake there. Uh, it's not simply your health care. The court has has recognized that there is a uh, a right um, uh, of the fetus, that the fetus does have certain rights, and that there is a point, there's a tipping point somewhere in there um, where the one right, uh, they balance uh or in some cases, the right of the fetus uh, would uh, would supersede uh, the right to certain uh, uh, procedures. So, I, look, I, that's that's where I am. So, I, you know, from a personal level, um, uh, like I said, I'm 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 against it. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure did I answer the question, Mike? I, 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 I believe did. I believe you absolutely did, and I think it was very very clear your position, and it, it's essentially my position. As well, I certainly don't feel uh, at all like I should be able to make that choice for anyone. And so I think the whole idea of pre-viability, it's, it's, there are these, you know, uh, 
certainly women can make that choice. And again, especially not being a woman, I, I feel particularly uh, unwilling to make that choice for anyone because I fundamentally believe in freedom, certainly. But I also understand your point about post-viability, these competing rights that have to be weighed. You know, in, And in I think I, I would probably draw that draw the line there as far as where those those rights balance different than where Amy would. Yeah. And maybe different where I would, you know, and, and some people certainly are, are very radical. There are some people, I mean, and I don't use radical as, as bad, just as a descriptor, basically. There are some people who certainly believe that, you know, life begins exactly at the moment of conception and they'll, therefore anything from that moment on, including, you know, morning after pills and so forth, that is in effect murder. And, and, you know, we've talked about that before. And on the other end, I don't know, you, you might not remember this, Jay, but Back a million years ago, when when you and I were at American University for our uh, our Washington semester mm-hmm. thing, there I remember there was a speaker in one of the, the seminars that I was in who was very the other way with it. And I asked her these questions. I said, "Well, let's say there was magically a procedure that could that could poof take the fetus outside of the woman and raise it, and it would be raised well and healthily and have a wonderful life. Would you still say that the woman could abort that fetus?" She's like, "Oh yeah." And I thought, well, I don't get that even at all. You know, and this, of course, is an issue where there are radicals on both sides of this issue. And I think you and I, as with so many things, occupy sort of a reasonable, uh, moderate position on this. You know, we're so yeah, Well, you know, and again, I think that sometimes there's, you know, the way I look at this is, uh, again, I've got some some strong personal convictions. Um but I think we also live in a a world, and you have to recognize the the legal constitutional constraints of of where we are. And sometimes I think it's it's foolish not to recognize those constraints. And I, and I I'm sometimes critical of, of folks in the pro life movement uh, who who do that, who would um, you know propose uh, you know bans that are sort of you know punitive or something like that. That's clearly not going to be uh, ruled constitutional. Um, uh, you know, and they do that instead of, of something that, you know, like making adoption easier, uh, that, that, that might, I think, further the pro-life cause better. Right. Absolutely. All right. Moving on. Chris wrote in on our Facebook page to take issue with Jay's comments on Donald Trump's strategy toward North Korea specific. I think it's very fitting given that by the time this episode is released, the the conference will have been, well, we'll see what happens. I don't know. The world will hopefully not be in flames. Uh, But anyway, Jay's, uh, you you remember, Jay, your comment that uh, Trump playing hardball brought North Korea back to the negotiating table. In response to this, Chris writes, they already were at the table. Trump left the table while North Korea stayed. Now you give him credit for just coming back and framing it as some sort of three-dimensional chess strategy. Uh, I commented back, I responded back on that to Chris, uh, that I thought, Jay, that you almost certainly didn't think that Trump is a geopolitical genius. Uh, I I feel pretty safe in saying that. But rather that his unconventional style kind of fit this particular situation, um, kind of by happenstance, maybe. And Chris replied to that, I can't deny Trump's unconventional style and wouldn't even try. It's a fact that he is unconventional. But letting Jay get away with saying he played hardball to get them back to the table is objectively untrue. It's not a question of opinion. It's just factually untrue. I appreciate your bipartisan effort so you guys have a conversation where both sides don't just talk past each other, but it's of little value when one side outright lies and you let him get away with it. Don't confuse objectivity with neutrality. 
Well, I think um, I don't think I'm lying. I mean, uh, again, let's let's set a couple things uh, in place in terms of, you know, what um, you and I talk about here is is we largely give our opinion, our commentary, our read on stuff. Um, it's it's not uh, it's not lying to say I I think Donald Trump uh, Donald Trump's approach works with Cam or seems to work with Cam. Uh, the other piece that I would I would respond with is. Let's take a look at at what we're talking about. Um, initially, we said, hey, Kim, as a precondition uh, to having any kind of a summit, we want a commitment, an agreement uh, that you are going to work towards uh, dismantling your entire nuclear program. Um, there was sort of the the blowback of he wasn't going to do that and there was some you know belligerence uh and then he said well you know because you guys had had uh, ships in this area and all you know anyway there was there was some back and forth and then trump pulled away um and then we've we've come back to this this idea that a a prerequisite and we'll see if this actually holds up um to this summit is the dismantling of the nuclear program uh so i think trump held firm on that uh, he wasn't going to let Kim get away with with anything of okay, well, we'll keep some of our nukes and we'll have the the uh, the summit. Now that I'm not saying that doesn't end up as a final result, uh, just because negotiations have a, a way of of you know taking on a life of their own. Um, but I think Trump was was right in um, uh, holding Kim's feet to the fire and saying making him come back with that uh, what's called a pseudo commitment. Uh, that you know, the reason he's he's coming to talk is that we're we're talking about a dismantling of North Korea's nuclear program in exchange for uh, recognition and security for uh, for Kim. Um, so in in that regard, I I I'm still uh, still where I am. I think uh, I think Trump uh, I think Trump's doing doing okay with uh, with Kim. And again, I think his his style. Whether it is intentional uh, or whether it's just accidental that you know, this happens to be the kind of guy that 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 approach works with, uh, I think so far it's it's been a good one. Yeah, and certainly by the time uh, this this show, again, let's let's let's, com- let's compare. Let's, let's let's go back a couple a couple months when the the narrative in the press was that you know Trump has brought us to the precipice of of, of nuclear war with North Korea. Um, and now we're having a summit about the Koreans uh, dismantling their entire nuclear program. Um, again, that may or may not happen, and the devil's going to be in the details, and there's going to have to be a lot of inspection compliance and all that. And as, as Trump pointed out, that's it, that's going to be the hard part. It's going to be years working that out. Um, but uh, well, I don't I, think I was lying about it. I mean, <laughs> well, I, I think my sense was that um, I think Chris is right in the sense that uh, Trump's hard talk didn't bring North Korea back to the negotiating table. But your larger point that Trump's hard-lined approach may have actually brought North Korea to the bargaining table in the first place, I think that's 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 a point where I certainly, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I certainly think it's a reasonable argument. And we'll, we'll see. I, I think what what I'm saying is I think it it got them to agree to certain kind of terms of engagement at least right. in this process that they wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah, and you know, well, like I said, we'll see how that that plays out. Like with so many things, I think we're we're impatient to know if this was the right call. And we want to make instant judgments and so forth. But even if 
this summit goes well, goes spectacularly well. Uh, it's going to be years before we really know because of just the nature of these sort of uh, uh, inspection and, and verification regimes. So, And we'll there was, I mean, I'm also, okay, I'm going to throw in just this old kind of like political chestnut sort of, you know, apocryphal story uh, that, that supposedly that, you know, Henry Kissinger, when he met with Zhou and Lai, they're talking over dinner, as, as these very smart people do, and he asked uh, Zhou and Lai, uh, you know, what what's your opinion of, of Napoleon's uh, influence on uh, on history? And supposedly, uh, Zhou and Lai replied, too early to tell. So, I mean... Yeah, I mean, there, there are time frames and there are time frames, but certainly, uh, we, we this is certainly too early to tell, we can say, I think. All right, uh, James from Dublin, Ireland writes... Hey, politics guys, I've been a listener of your show now for a couple of months. And before I go any further with this, I just want to let you guys know how much of a good job I think you all do. Keep it up as a postgraduate political science student listening from Ireland. It's always interesting to tune in and listen to you flesh out the issues of the day. Thanks, James. Uh, so here's his question. I was wondering uh, to get I want to get your input on viable ways forward for the Democrats come 2020. As you may or may not know, Ireland has just undone a constitutional ban on legislating for abortion. This is commonly referred to as the Eighth Amendment and made legislating for abortion next to impossible. What's been really interesting to watch is how both camps were able to mobilize the youth vote. It's probably fair to say that those who were in favor of repealing the Eighth Amendment from the Irish Constitution were able to tap into the more liberal viewpoint of the young vote. I'd be curious to get your guys' take on what, if anything, the two parties in the U.S. could do to mobilize a voting base like this. One of the things I hear so much about from listening to U.S. politics shows and reading articles is the level, is the level of voter apathy. So I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on what both parties could do to change some of this, possibly picking up where Bernie Sanders left off. All right. Well, I guess that question is, well, for both of us, but maybe more for me than for you, Jay, since, yeah, since James you Pope. start. I think it's being done. Uh, Donald Trump has been spectacular for uh, voter apathy. We've seen already in some of the special elections and in the uh, uh, in the primaries, Democrats are very energized and so forth. And, and speaking as a political scientist, one of the things that we know is that people most often tend to vote when they feel they have some big reason to vote, when they're upset about something. That's what energizes people, those strong emotions. And so when you get a situation where maybe, for instance, most commonly the economy's doing poorly, or when there's a president who say women feel is, or minorities feel is very strongly against them, whether that's true or not, in fact, that will get people energized. But there've been a lot of efforts, various get out the vote efforts and so forth. But without that sort of emotional component to energize people on their own. It's really difficult to create that out of nothing, I would say. But but I think, again, that's I, I would say the beauty of our system uh, is that when one side goes too far, when you get kind of a radical outlier like a Donald Trump or someone like that, people respond to that. And I think we're going to see Democrats come out in record numbers and that's going to be a good thing for not just for the Democrats in 2018, but I think fundamentally that's a good thing for uh, democratic governance. Jay? Yeah, I, I sort of agree, sort of disagree. Um, uh, on the one hand, I, I think so much of American politics turnout, it, it tends to be 
dr- personality driven rather than issue driven. Uh, again, you you get these these senses sometimes. Again, whether the economy is going bad, uh, that you'll you'll get more wave election type type situations of hey, we just we want to change. Uh, you know, it's that that famous question in, in the polling that that you know. You know, are things going going well? Not so well. That kind of thing. Are you better off um, now than right you were two right years ago? Right direction, wrong direction. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that that figures in a lot um, because there's there's you know typically a, a subset of hardcore Republicans, hardcore Democrats who are always going to turn out and they're always going to vote the party line. Uh, it is getting those those folks who are less enthused. And they either need to get enthused by the feeling that uh, something has to change. Uh, or um, uh, because of, of they're attracted to the personality of, of a certain candidate. And I think Trump brought in some of those people both on the change sense and the personality sense. You may dislike his personality, but you but you can't disagree that, that he has one uh, so, as opposed to say, you know, like a, a Michael Dukakis or you know someone someone like that. Um, uh, so there's there's that. Um, the thing that that I, I think that that is a little weird right now is Trump, in some ways, has pushed this Democratic turnout, but he's also driven it farther left, which I think is a bad strategy, uh, Democrat-wise. And maybe it's not a strategy; it's just that's kind of what's happened. Um, and, you know, where the Democrats have had success in in this this interim period has been when they've nominated folks who are more moderate uh, Democrats. Uh, who are are uh, not necessarily social justice warriors, um, uh, but you know. So we'll we'll see how that plays out um, in uh, as we actually go. But but uh, well, well, you know, Jed, that brings up an interesting point, and I'll get a little political scientisty here. Um, back back when you and I were coming up uh, a million years ago, again, um, the conventional wisdom about how to win re-election was to basically solidify your base and move toward the center to try to bring right. in the center and get those voters. But that's changed an awful lot over it's the now last energize 20- your base. Exactly. Don't even worry about the center basically, and just kind of drive turnout amongst your base. And if you can depress turnout amongst the other person's base, that's fine too. We've seen more and more of that. And part of that, some would argue, is uh, because of congressional gerrymandering and self-sorting in the districts. Uh, there have been some various other changes and so forth. But that that now is the preferred strategy for more and more uh, politicians. And, and I would argue, as, as clearly I say you would agree, that that is not – maybe while that's short-term – useful and helpful in the long term. I think it's it's not only self-defeating, but it's bad for the country. Yeah, no, I, I'd, I'd agree on that. Um, and I think the other, you know, part of that, the, the reason that tends to work better than it used to uh, is because of one, we've sort of uh, self-segregated ourselves into these, these districts. Uh, the districts have been sort of then gerrymandered, if you want to say, or, or written around that those, those, preferences. Um, it's it's probably a little bit of both, right? I mean, uh, people have moved where they want to move um, and uh, and the, the, the district lines have followed. Um, and the same goes even on, on statewide basis, right? I mean, you've had folks who, you know, states have, have turned more blue, more red uh, just because of inflow and outflow. There's no gerrymandering in place there. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, I, I I would agree with you, but I'm just looking. 
Um, if, if you want to take a look at the big elections, presidential elections, um, you, you don't see, I would say with the exception of Barack Obama, uh, any real um, ideological outliers who tend to win. And, and Obama, you can make the case, was elected in very much a, a change year. The economy was, was in a you know, dramatic downfall. Uh, and it was almost like it was almost like an FDR situation. But but he's not. Um, I mean, that, I think that's a myth that he's an ideological outlier. He's pretty pretty standard. Fits in with the, the center leftish. I, I suppose. I mean, I suppose. but he, let's put the, Bernie he, Sanders is an ideological outlier, not yes, not Barack yes. Obama. But yeah. uh, all right. Uh, well, you know, longtime listener Ryan wrote in to say, I slightly disagree with the idea that Trump and to an extent the GOP are more tactical than strategic when it comes to policy. I think when it comes to judges and such, they are not tactical. When it comes to foreign policy and domestic, they are more tactical. They go for the short-term win without thinking about things 30 years down the line, which is what China is is currently doing. I think he means thinking long-term there. They don't think short-term. They think for the long-term. I'm curious to see if you guys have any thoughts on this matter. Yeah, I... um. I just uh, said that the Joe and Lie bet. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll say it totally makes sense. If you and I, uh, my background in American politics is uh, I'm what's called an institutionalist, which means I, I studied uh, for for my doctorate in that political institutions. And Not that you're in, institutionalized. Yeah. Well, yeah. Institutions drive in in many ways drive behavior. So when you have institutions that don't require you to seek reelection every two or four or six years, it's easier to plan long-term. But if you're always looking toward your next re-election, that's a lot harder to do. And we have an institutional setup that kind of drives a lot of people, especially in the House, toward shorter-term, what can get me past the next election sort of thinking. And so I think that's sort of a natural consequence. But that being said, I think there are a lot of other benefits, obviously, to not having you know dictators for life, certainly. Yeah. Well, and to some extent, um, I, I would disagree with the premise uh, that uh, foreign policy, we tend to look at the short term. Was that the premise? Or did I, 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 think, did I, I think, yeah, in, in part, yeah. Well, he said, when, no, he said when it comes to foreign policy and domestic. It was long term. So everything, okay. he's basically, he says, judges, we're thinking, the GOP's thinking long term. But when it comes to pretty much not judges, it's like what can look good for the next election or short term, whatever. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I would disagree a little bit with that, and and maybe again Trump's the exception. Um, but if you look at at American foreign policy, uh, typically foreign policy issues uh, don't turn elections. Uh, that's, I mean, as a political scientist guy, you'd agree with that, Mike. I think that that most elections turn on on domestic rather than than foreign issues. I mean, there are exceptions, you know, when you're involved in a war and so forth, but um, in most, in most cases, that's, that's not the situation. And if you look at something like, uh, have we had, you know, really changes in, in foreign policy over the last 50 years? Well, not so much, right? I mean, uh, uh, we have been sort of on a steady, again, with the exception of, let's say the last, last six months, uh, towards, uh, expanded global trade, expanded globalization, um, more integration of, of global economies, uh, the continued role as the U.S. as sort of the 
dominant uh, hegemon militarily uh, that will protect these economic arrangements. Um, and and both Republicans and Democrats have supported that 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 line, that trend line. Um, but President Trump part. doesn't. And I see what you're saying. But again, like we've yeah. got, and again, this is an exception that we've gotten here. And for example, Democrats, I think, um, you know, a lot of them uh, uh, will on occasionally raise the protectionist flag uh, over different trade deals. Uh, but when it comes down to a vote, they still end up voting for it or maybe taking a walk and the, the thing the thing passes. There's no there's no real change in the trajectory. Um so well, I, I guess I, I guess I guess I, I differ with the premise on that, and I think that we are more strategic. And maybe whether you call it strategic or whether this is just sort of this is the way these things play out, um, you know, our foreign policy is pretty consistent long term. Um, Trump accepted. Yeah, Trump accepted. Okay. Which 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 let's put it this way: even that we don't know if that exception is really going to kick in yet. Sure. He's talking, but it hasn't happened yet. Well, it has happened in, in the sense of a number of the tariffs. I mean, some of the tariffs right. that, that the, the steel and aluminum tariffs have gone into effect. So we do know that, that has happened and there have been retaliatory tariffs. So that aspect of it, yes, that has gone into effect. But Fair enough. Okay. Um, let's see. Regarding Speaking of trade, uh, regarding a pro-trade post that was made on the politics guys page, I think Trey might have made it. Uh, he's also joining with us. He's a he's a free trader, certainly. Um, Seth commented, "Is it reasonable to ask who needs who more?" I'm closer to the Bernie Sanders view of trade, but it occurs to me that our post-World War II foreign policy has largely been based on the concept of enriching other nations to create more markets for U.S. goods and services, or as a foil to communism. The problem occurs when the building up of the emerging markets comes at the expense of the American worker. Don't those emerging markets need the American consumer at least as much, if not more, than the American consumer needs them? Um, yeah, to some extent. I mean, let's let's put it this way. I I think it's um, we we gain a lot from these emerging markets. Mostly, it's it's cheap labor. Um, but ideally, I think we we end up in a situation where uh, those those emerging markets are are sort of self sustaining. I mean, they're they're you know spending uh, people buying in their own countries, their own regions. Uh, it's not all that they're dependent on on the U.S. Uh, U.S. is is going to obviously continue to be one of the largest purchasers just because of our, our purchasing power. Um, but if you look at other places that uh, like China or India, which don't necessarily have the per capita income we do, but have such the tremendous population, uh, they also uh, you know have have an outside outsize um, uh, you know role in all this and I, I think if i understand the question right i mean i and maybe i don't maybe mike you should answer well i i <laughs> i think i have a certain amount of sympathy i understand what i think what what seth seth is getting at but i think the fundamental problem comes when we try to talk about the american worker um in isolation well, number one the american worker corresponds to so many people in so many different industries and some of them are incredibly advantaged by free trade. And some of them, it's much more concentrated groups, smaller group, aren't. We see this, for instance, with the with the tariffs on, on steel and aluminum. It definitely hurts the American steel and aluminum industry intensely. But 
there's far greater pain that's spread out a lot more among thousands and thousands. For example, the the auto industry, which then suffers from retaliatory Exactly. And so when we talk about American workers, we need to keep that in mind. Also, we we don't want to look at American workers in an isolated way. We need to think about American consumers because, of course, workers are also consumers and you raise the price of their goods. That is, as you know, many Republicans have pointed out, sort of a tax on them. And so I think the problem comes when we try to look at these things in isolation. I understand the tendency to do that, but we have to look at this as an integrated whole. And what I think economists who study trade have almost invariably found out is that it is true that certain people are hurt when we open up trade. There's no question about that. Certain people, certain industries, but overall the benefit, not just for these emerging markets, which is the benefit for them has been huge. This lifted more people out of poverty than anything else. And it's been tremendous in that sense, but also there's an overall net benefit to the United States. But when we look, when we break it down and look at certain segments that are hurt, yeah, but that's, that's the price of getting that overall benefit. There's no way to not have anyone harmed by that, unfortunately. Well, and there's also uh, the other piece that we talk about. It's not just that American workers, uh, that that the there are jobs lost uh, because they go to foreign countries. Uh, sometimes they're lost because of technological innovation, uh, which is a good thing and a bad thing. And, and, and as you point out, because in some cases, this is creating new jobs for the people who create these, these innovations. Uh, it's freeing up uh, labor to do something that may likely be more productive. Right. Uh, It may be lowering prices for goods for people who buy them, uh, who then uh, may have more money to spend on something else where someone else can work. It's it's a it's a a complex picture. And I guess from from me, the the appropriate conservative Republican viewpoint has always been uh, the government ought to not step in uh, to try to protect one industry over another to pick winners and losers, as they say, uh, because it inevitably. inhibits this this free flow this this what's going to happen someone is always going to get hurt the recovery i think is quicker when the government stays out of it um uh and and you know so much the march of 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 innovation um we we can't even see what's coming next um this is funny mike we didn't get to the what i'm reading uh last week but mine was going to be um in going through some some old books uh while moving my mom i found a copy of Alvin Toffler's Future Shock, uh, the 1970 edition. Um, and again, this was just kind of really just kind of fun to, to just kind of page, you know, peruse through and, and see what's what's come and what hasn't. But uh, it, it's one of those, there was so much that he saw coming, so much he didn't see coming. Um, and, and likewise, when the government tries to intervene to say, you know, it, look, if, if they wanted to uh, safeguard the, uh, the lamp makers uh, back in the day, uh, we likely wouldn't have the electric light bulb and we'd have a lot fewer whales. Um, so, I, you know, that's to me is. Well, and, and the standard, I think, uh, pre-trade promoting response to people who understandably say in objection to that, yeah, but these other countries are protecting their own industries to standard responses say, yeah, and that's going to hurt them in the long run. And so, if they want to do destructive things, now there's a line, of course, but uh, and it, and, they, and they shouldn't. And and most of these free trade agreements that we enter into, the, the WTO, the GATT, and so forth, uh, you know, prohibits those you know types of of 
you know, let's call it in, informal, you know, subsidizing your, your industry and, and dumping and, and those kind of anti-competitive things. So yeah, you got to police it. Yeah. But. All right. And then next we have, let's see, Dave, who posted the following question on our Facebook page. My question uh, is for Jay and is about regulation in general. All right. My politics veer left. To me, history has shown that when capitalism goes unchecked, factory owners chain kids to the factory machines to make them work. Food processors, food processors didn't remove rat feces from the meat they were packaging and selling. Isn't it universally considered a good thing that we now have regulations that prevent us from eating rat feces unless we choose? Um, <laughs> unless we choose. Yeah. Uh, it's wait, a little, well, sort of a loaded question. All right. Well, uh, it seems obvious that government regulation is a very effective counterbalance to the inevitable abuses that will occur when profit is the only motive. I think that Jay believes undoing Dodd-Frank altogether would be a good idea. Please correct me if I'm wrong about that. And also that Jay wants to eliminate the CFPB, even though it seems that evidence shows that the CFPB is effectively doing its job. It sounds like the knee-jerk reaction is always, regulation is bad. End of story. We already know that Wall Street behaves as responsibly as frat boys at their first kegger, so I'm consistently confounded by these anti-regulation attitudes. Though I'm not blind to the fact that government can be clumsy and regulations can have unintended consequences, they can slow economic growth and stifle some business interests. I'm sure child labor laws really put the hurt on some industries, but that's not a reason to eliminate them, in my opinion. Maybe we are starting with such a different set of presumptions and starting points that I'm missing Jay's points. If you feel like making the time, could Jay please construct the general argument that leads him to dislike government regulation as a rule? I promise I'll check my bias at the door. I really don't understand where he's coming from. All right. Have uh, at it, Jay. Let me, let, me, let me first say, I go on record, I, I oppose uh, eating rat feces. And um, child labor, presumably. And child labor. Um, and, and look, I, I think to make those... Uh, to compare that to say the the CFPB uh, and uh, Dodd Frank, uh, that's that's a bit of a stretch. Uh, I, my position and and look, I, if you care what my position is, I again I'm as Re- Mike says a Republican factotum. I just sort of give the uh, my impression of of what uh, uh, the conservative Republican position is is in general, and and people can you know it's more to uh, illuminate uh, those who might not hear it otherwise. Um, uh, is that there's there's of course a a role for government to play in reasonable regulation, and if you look at things like uh, child labor, like uh, sanitation, I mean those those are things that um, were fixed, were changed, and again some of this is is technological innovation, some of it is changes in our attitudes uh, in society um, uh, from from where they were in the 19th century through the 20th century. Um, and uh, but but there there comes a point where and and this point comes sort of quickly where the government when the government steps in to regulate they often step in uh, to sort of uh, create a winners and losers situation um, you know Mike and you you and I talk about crony capitalism a lot of times so often regulations uh, don't really regulate and, and and protect consumers what they do is they protect. Uh, the biggest player in the industry who was able to afford uh, those uh, compliance with those regulations. Uh, they create a barrier of entry to new uh, uh, new uh, new players. For, here, here's here's like a, a really good example, and this is something I was just arguing locally about uh, a week or so ago. Uh, it used to be 
the, the city of Cleveland uh, prohibited food trucks. Um, now, I don't know where, where you live, Mike, but I think the whole food truck revolution has been, been absolutely fantastic. Uh, it creates new jobs. It's a new industry that didn't exist uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Uh, it's created vibrancy in a lot of communities. Uh, it's it's delicious food. Now, you can say that there ought to be certainly standards and they ought to be um, uh, inspected by the, the health inspector and so forth and pass those checkpoints. But there were also there were the, the push against food trucks was from protectionist brick and mortar uh, folks who just didn't want the competition. Um to me, I, I don't think that's the role, the proper role of government is to protect uh, one market um, uh, participant from another. Uh, I think that ends up hurting everyone in the long term because you get less innovation and higher prices um, and also often often lower quality. I mean, we, we've sort of made this, this idea, it's central to our antitrust laws, that competition is a good thing. Uh, and so often overregulation stifles competition. Uh, second, second, secondly, and I guess, uh, the other part of this would be, um, no, I, I don't think that we need a, a CFPB. Um, we've, uh, the Republic survived quite well, uh, for a long time without it. Uh, it doesn't really do much for consumers. It's more a punitive tax on financial institutions. Uh, it puts the government more in charge of, uh, uh, of banks and and if there's, I think that's 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 what <laughs> troubles me and it's also the the CFPB has like uh, like many government uh, entities once they sort of get their initial mandate, their first step is to try to expand upon it. Uh, for example, the CFPB went into things about uh, auto loan uh, financing and discrimination in auto loan financing when it was clearly outside of, of what they were supposed to be doing and they essentially uh, sort of made up evidence uh, to, to support their their claims on that. Um, that to me is, is a problem because what it does is is it uh, regulates a lot of uh, financiers and makes it harder for people to get auto loans. Um, maybe not all at once, but uh, but over time, that kind of regulation raises the price on everyone else and it, it reduces innovation. Yeah. Well, you know, like on so many other issues, I think you and I disagree or agree. I'm, sorry. I'm still, still no child labor. Yeah. yeah. Well, we agree, I think <laughs> on a lot of the fundamentals, you, you mentioned the purposes of regulation and the downfalls and that sort of thing, potential downfalls of regulation. And I, you know, I was, you were saying that and I was just nodding right along basically where we disagree. And I think where a lot of Republicans and Democrats disagree is when it comes to the application of that. Like you talk about the CFPB, I would argue that it's much more than a punitive thing. I, I would argue that that affects behavior and that they have like, for instance, in uh, Wells Fargo has almost totally tried to remake themselves. I'm so sick of seeing their, we're a reestablished 2018 Wells Fargo. Well, that was in large part due to the CFPB. So I, I, I take all of your your points. I think they're they're important to keep in mind. Certainly, oh, there yeah, can I be. Would say it was also in, in response to their, you know, big taking some big market hits. But yeah, well, uh, but and my, my my larger point being that uh, again on the fundamentals, you and I tend to agree on that. But when it comes to well. It's always this question of degree. How much regulation, therefore, is too much? What is too broad of a mandate? Well, people from the left and the right, while we can agree on fundamental concepts, the devil is, you know, obviously in these details. And there aren't 
clear answers on this, despite what people on both sides will tell you. No one knows how much regulation is too much and how to weigh the costs and the benefits of that, except in truly extreme cases like child labor or rat feces or things like that. But, you know, and that's why that's why I think it's important not to just say, well, I think it was great. Dave, that you said, you know, I check my bias at the door because I think we need to keep an open mind on this and not just decide government regulation is good, government regulation is bad. We need to consider the circumstance of these cases and be open to the evidence and see what it says about the costs and the benefits. You know, my my last thing that I'd want to add to this, uh, if it wasn't apparent already, the, the bigger concern that I have is that you know, governments, and this is sort of a, a you know, going back to the, the Lord Acton axiom that power corrupts absolute, power corrupts absolutely. Uh, whenever a government entity has some sort of power, they will exercise it. They will seek to expand it. And and Mike, as you said, institutionalist, you can probably say that's that's part of just the way institutions work, right? Um, and and to me, as a, a conservative that is concerned with with personal liberty in the free market. Uh, it's it's the growth of regulation. If you look at the tremendous growth of regulation that that occurred, for example, under the Obama administration, and these were these were things that were not uh, congressional enactments. These were all uh, pieces that were done by rule um, uh, and so forth. It 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 was expanding exponentially. The cost on uh, business was expanding exponentially. The cost of our government expands exponentially. Now, just and, and I think I think there's I just think there's there's a, a tendency on the left or even on the right of when you have a regulatory institution that it will always want to grow, and that's that to me is a a uh, long term threat or at least a threat that ought to be you know observed when it comes to when you're balancing that against uh, personal freedom. Sure, and, and just just to point out, I. I want to say that when you say exponentially, you mean a lot, not actually exponentially. Yes. Okay. Just because I, 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 I can hear people I just saying, the, saying that, done all the math. It, no, it may actually be exponential. Well, no, it wouldn't be because exponential expansion, of course, is before well. we had two two rules. Now we have four rules, and you know, yeah, now pretty we have soon you rules. have more rules than there are grains of sand in the in the universe or whatever. So. Yeah, there's a lot of rules though. Yeah, not that. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, that does it for us to, uh, for this episode. If you do have a question, comment, or correction. For us, I just want to know, you know, those like David, I just don't understand this fundamental position that one you know, that I'm taking or Jay's taking. Just send us an email at mailapoliticsguys.com or you can message us on the pol- Facebook Politics Guys page at uh, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. Or just, you know, a lot of times some of these questions just come from things you've written uh, in response to some of the things we've posted. Um, all right, and that does it for this episode. I, can okay. I just throw like one last thing? Is, sure. is, is I read some uh, some Milton Friedman, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm just throwing that out there, just in, in general. Anything about Milton Friedman, uh, you know, if, if you're looking to try to get the rationale of where is this even coming from, um, that sort of sense is that that you know markets regulate themselves better uh, than governments do, and and. Uh, 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 I'll, I'll leave it at that. But I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to just. No, I get it. give give, r- give people a resource. And, and curse the darkness, Mike. So. Re- look up uh, look up Milton Friedman on Wikipedia. That's the simplest place to start and go from there. It's my general advice. But anyway, uh, thanks everyone for listening. We do hope you liked what you heard, and of course your support critical to keep us going. We really do appreciate it. You know how that works. If you just go to politicsguys.com slash support, the direct link, 
or just go to politicsandlives.com and click on support. Uh, the Patreon or PayPal links there. Also, subscribing to the show and sharing episodes is very helpful, as is leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes. Again, to get in touch with us, mail at politicsguys.com. There's a Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We are also on Twitter, at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.